This is Writer's Latitude, a podcast about writers, their work, and things they care about. I'm your host, Joe Samuel Starnes. Good afternoon. I'm Joe Samuel Starnes, and most of you know me as Sam. I appreciate you coming out. I'm thrilled to be here today in Songbird Karaoke as part of the Collingswood Book Festival to talk about Leth Oons, A Refugee's American Dream, from the Killing Fields of Cambodia to the U.S. Secret Service. It's been my honor to be his co-author. Leth is a survivor of the Killing Fields who immigrated to the U.S. 40 years ago this month and ultimately became a U.S. Secret Service officer who has protected four presidents. He'll be retiring this month from the Secret Service. Leth and I are especially excited to have Tim Lunibus joining us via webcast from Los Angeles. Tim is a longtime film and TV actor who you might recognize from Star Trek, The Next Generation, JAG, The West Wing, Bosch, and NCIS, and many other things. So uh, Leth and I were really thrilled when we got a couple of choices of uh, narrators to audition. Tim was fantastic, and then we looked him up and thought, wow, he's going to be, uh, be reading our book and be doing the audiobook. So we're thrilled about that. And the audiobook is re- officially released on Tuesday which also happens to be Leth's birthday. So the timing worked out perfectly. So we're really excited about that. And it's available in all the audiobook formats, um, iBooks, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If you go to Libro.fm and go to uh, Inkwood Books or you know, we were at Words Matter Bookstore, you can go through their page and buy the audiobook and they get a little bit of a commission. So you're supporting an independent bookstore if you do it that way. So... Um, Really excited. Tim is going to read, uh, for, actually going to end up reading six sections of the book, and then we'll be in conversation with Leth. So Tim, if, uh, Tim's going to read right from the very beginning of the prologue. Oh, I'm sorry. And I wanted to give uh, both Tim and Leth an opportunity to say hello or thank you. for. I just want to say thank you and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here. Uh, it's been a great honor. So uh, it's a great honor to serve this country. So uh, thanks, Tim, for doing all the work. Thames. He's the one make the books happens. Without him, the books probably still in the books in the bag somewhere. So, Sean make it happen, printing too. So, it's a lot of people make this happens, and it's been four years to make what it is today. So, yeah, our editor from Temple University Press, Sean Viggle, is also here in the front row. So we're thrilled that Sean could come over and uh, join us. All right, so I should start off now and let uh, your birthday's on Tuesday, so I don't think the gifts can arrive from California in time. <laughs> Expedited. <laughs> <laughs> I could recognize my pa from far away simply by watching him take a single step. He stood about five feet, seven inches tall and had short, thick black hair. He walked with his fists clenched and his elbows bent sharply as he brought his powerful arms up in time. His strides were rigid and purposeful, a gait he had learned when he was a soldier in his teens. He held his back ramrod straight and his shoulders high and kept his head very still, his dark eyes looking ahead. He had been in the army for so long that he marched everywhere. Even when not wearing his green officer's uniform, he marched. He marched when he could have relaxed. That's what a lifetime of war does to a man. I think of him while returning to Cambodia for the first time in 32 years. I have not been back to my native land since I crossed the border into a Thai refugee camp in 1980. 
fortunate to have survived a torturous three years, eight months, and ten days in the Khmer Rouge's killing fields, and a year of homelessness that followed. So much has changed in my life since. I'm an American citizen, a college graduate, a father, and an officer in the U.S. Secret Service Uniform Division. I'm traveling to Cambodia with a contingent of fellow Secret Service officers and agents on a C-17 military cargo plane. We are going to protect President Barack Obama, the first American president to visit Cambodia. As the enormous plane, which is as big as a warehouse, carries us towards Phnom Penh, my mind is not on the history of this moment, but on the memories of my heart. Thanks for reading, Tim. So, uh, Leth, this is the very beginning. This is the prologue. Uh, you're going back to Cambodia for the first time in 32 years, and you think about your father. So, tell me a little bit about, you know, the Khmer Rouge came in on that mid-April 1975, and your father was in the army. And they took all the soldiers prisoner and put them in schools and turned them into prison. So, tell us about your dad and seeing him that time. So... April 17, 1975, when the full Khmerus slash commies took over the country. So they gathered all the military personnel, put in different schools. So one of the schools was my old school that my dad sent me before I have reached the age to go to real school, which is the mix of girls and boys school. And... After they took over the country, I, I was lied to my mom. Uh, it was a little one bicycle, one-speed bicycle, no helmet, flip-flops, no top. So my mission to find my dad, and it was all-day mission. And finally, I found him one of the schools, and the men knew what was going to happen, but they didn't really say anything to us. Uh, the, the face expression they gave me was like, you know, there's something bad's going to happen, but didn't really tell me. So he told me, uh, I'm okay. Hey, go back, tell your mom I'm going to be okay. So I come back. My mom yelled at me. It's like, where you at? You know, it, it was so chaotic. It's like in the movies, smoke, animal, dogs, everything died everywhere because it's so chaotic at the moment. And I told her, I found dad, and she pulled me inside. So how do you find so I told him what I did. Um, so that's over there. He said, I cooked him something to eat. So I brought him the food in the morning, afternoon. And the third day, when I went back, I uh, brought him the food. And the whole entire school was empty. So they took him, uh, executed him. That was the last time I saw my dad. And uh, we lost. I lost a lot of uh, family members because I grew up in the military. My dad was an army. His, his older brothers on me, my grandparents, my uncles, two cousins. So we lost more than almost entire family during those times, 75s. Within three days of, uh, after the, the communists took over the country. Um, yeah, so thanks for sharing that, Leth. The, um, you know, the next scene, Tim's going to read. The, uh, your do your, when you were traveling on the plane in Cambodia, you were taking your bomb-protecting dog. And actually, the dog, I was really thrilled that the dog made the cover of the book, too, on the, doing a uh, sweep in the White House. So tell us a little bit about, about Reich. Reich is uh, mostly people confused with the German shepherds. He's a Belgian Malinois. He talks a lot, loves to work. He bites a lot, too. 
So my suggestion, if you want a dog, don't get a Belgian Manoir. So we make a house to a dumpster. Uh, Rai is bilingual, uh, speak Cambodian, understand Cambodian English as well. So we got there, C-17, open the tail, uh, get outside, looked over there. So my dad took me one time before the war on a, 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 a T-28 um, leftover from French. It's old, loud, and got there. So we landed over there. We, we heard nothing when the plane landed, nothing but the rockets, gunfights every corner. So when I get off C-17, I was kind of afraid to get outside the airplane. So am I going to be shot at? Get outside, 110 degrees, smell, you know, the trash, the sewage around it. I said, well, this is Cambodia. Yeah. So get outside. You, and you thought, like, like, you were hiding your emotions from all your coworkers yeah. who didn't really know your background. They didn't really understand all the things that you had lived through because you didn't tell everybody, you know, you know, the things that you survived, but the dog had a sense. The dog knew that you were a little tense. Right? Yeah. The, the dog, it's one of the things like, uh, he understands and kind of smells, sense me through not so much emotion smell. It's a pool that, you know, you got to know more understand about dogs, but I uh, looked at me like what's going on with you. You know, I'm still, sitting in the kennel, he needed to get out. So uh, he kind of understand the emotional scorn feeling I got in there. But of course, he doesn't speak the language. He wouldn't understand Cambodian, but he doesn't speak Cambodian. <laughs> so so we'll finally get him out. He's all happy. And, you know, um, I talked to him Cambodian. People are so impressed about it. I say he's bilingual. So. <laughs> Another one of job security as well. So, right. so Tim's going to read the last section of the prologue now. The C-17 touches down shortly after noon in Phnom Penh. My heart is thumping as I take Reich from his kennel and the hatch in the plane opens and we begin to disembark. I'm stepping out under a Cambodian sky for the first time in more than three decades. The sunlight is bright and it's hot, as it almost always is in Cambodia. I look out and see palm trees and the skyline of the city. It's dusty and humid and it smells. I smile. This is Cambodia. I look around, and for a moment I forget what year it is. I don't move, but a wave of fear sweeps over me. Is anybody going to shoot at me now? The memory is overwhelming. I am a child shortly before the Khmer Rouge wins the Civil War, before they take my paw away. I am playing with other kids, all of us without shirts and shoes. There is a war going on, but we enjoy ourselves in spite of it. We swim gleefully in the warm Sankai River and run in the fields and make up games of hockey in the mud with bamboo sticks. We stop when we hear bombs and gunshots. When the fighting is nearby, we lie face down on the ground until the explosions and gunfire fade. We always resume our games until the Khmer Rouge takes over in April 1975, and all games stop. This memory is so strong for me. It's as if I have gone back in time. After a moment, I realize that this is not the 70s. The war is over. The killing fields are just a memory. My pa is long gone, yet he is with me on every step of this trip. My eyes begin to water, but I don't have time to cry. 
I have to make sure the president and his staff will be safe when they arrive. Duty always comes first. It did for my pa, and it does for me now. I make eye contact with Reich. He knows that we have a job to do, and we will do it well. Failure, as we often say in the Secret Service, is not an option. We are here to protect the president. Thanks, Tim. Um, next section Tim's going to read is after they took your father away, for, evacuated the cities. They forced you and your mother and your sister to, uh, you walked for about a week and then you, you ended up in, staying in a factory. So tell us a little bit about that week before you got resettled and assigned a job in the Khmer Rouge and a little bit about your mom because your mom's critical to these. So uh, my mom is after my dad killed, executed. She's taking double duties, make sure my sis, older sister and I you know, survive. She sacrificed everything. So when the Khmer Rouge took over, they force evacuated by point AK-47 us. And the only thing we got, whatever we have in the bag, small bag there, my mom grabs a bunch of rice and dry fish to take with us. And uh, it was hard. And then uh, later on, a night it turned out to be a monsoon. And we walked and walked at no destination. And we ran to one of my, uh, my father, distant cousin, asked if we could stay there. And uh, they told my mom that she couldn't because if, she let us stay there. The company will kill them too. So anyone related or know someone working in the government, they will kill all of them. It's just that simple. So we keep walking, walking, and uh, my mom's uncle decided, you know, we can't just keep doing this. We have to come back. So come back and talk to one of uh, the, the communists to being a mechanic. So they say, okay, you're a mechanic. We'll give you a trial for like a few months. So he walked back, picked us up, so we took a, us to a choice now. We would sell like old uh, rice process factory with a whole bunch of rats running around. There's no uh, mattress, there's no pillows, there's no blanket. It's pretty much you start and sleep on the dirt, which is a little uh, plastic cover that, and rain comes down a lot. So that's where we stop and we stay in there for a while until the Vietnamese took over almost but, that. So. Yeah. so, but the the factory became your home and you just slept on the floor. So it's pretty much, yeah. And your mother, uh, one of those very first days, your mother called you and your older sister, Dee, outside to talk. And that's the next section that Tim's going to read. She put her hands on our shoulders and leaned forward, her face inches from ours. What I am about to tell you is very important, she whispered, her voice on edge. Very important. Be sure to listen closely. Never tell anyone that your pa was in the army. Never. That will get us all killed right away. Kim Bond said they are murdering soldiers with their family and their families. You have to say you never met your pa. He was a taxi driver. He drove a tricycle. Do not say his real name. You should use my father's family name. Sin and say his name was Rit, Sin Rit. You must say he left after you were born. I did not understand. I was only nine years old. My pa's name was Unsut. I had hoped my pa would join us. He could make everything right. Where is pa? I asked. He is gone. I do not know. 
My sister, who was seventeen by then, and much taller than me, spoke up. Do you think they killed him? I do not know, my mom said, her eyes filling with tears for a second. I do not know. We cannot know for sure. Kim Bond thinks they did, but we don't know. We can pray that he survived. But for now, we must deny he was in the army. If you don't, we all will be killed. She wiped her eyes, and the momentary unsteadiness of her voice faded away. Listen to me. We must be strong. You can tell no one the truth. His name was Sin Rit, and he was a taxi driver. He drove a taxi, a tricycle in Batambang City. He didn't live with us. You didn't know him. She turned to me, putting her hand on my shoulder, gripping it hard. Imagine I am a Khmer Rouge soldier, she said. She put on an angry voice. Who is your pa? I paused, having a hard time putting words together. She gripped harder. Who is your pa? I couldn't get the words out. Tears forming in my eyes, it tore me up inside to deny my father, the man whom I'd looked up to like a god. Where is your pa? She said again, even more intense. His name was Sinrit, and he was a taxi driver, I said, sputtering out barely intelligible words. He drove a tricycle in Bantambang City. Again, she said, imagine my finger as a rifle. She poked me hard in the chest. I will find some bamboo and whip you if you don't do this right. Who is your pa? I took a deep breath, and this time I was able to get the words out without crying too much. His name was Sinrit and he was a taxi driver. He drove a tricycle. I never knew him. That's better, but do it again. You must be strong. I said it once more, this time without crying. She looked at me. Much better. You must remember that. Your name is not Sakamatsat. It is Prue, and your family name is not Un. It is Sin. She checked around to see if anyone was coming. What is your name? My name is Prue. What is your name, your full name? My name is Sin Prue. Repeat it back to me. My name is Sin Prue. Again, she said. I repeated it once more. Good. Remember that. It could save all our lives. Thanks, Tim. And you know, one th- detail I think we should point out: your your birth name until the 1975 was Sokomasov, and so that's when you changed it. And you only became Lethun in the uh, refugee camps. And there's a story about that too, but we'll we'll maybe get to that one later. Um, tell us a little about this next scene uh, when you uh, Reich was not your first dog. Tell us about your uh, your dog Dino, which was your childhood dog. So. I grew up with dogs and all the time. Uh, one of the present my mom gave me was a French bulldog's named Dino. Dino, it's, he only speaks one, understand one language is Cambodian. Um, he becomes so close to me, he's like a brother to me. We went uh, to a movie theater to watch movie together, sitting on chairs like human being. Came home after school, always come, greeted me. 
when the communist, he always walked me, stand by me. He comforted me throughout the whole time there. And uh, one was sleeping in an old rice factory. He always slept next to me. And then I went on to work. He came back, you know, pretty much every day, every time. So come to the U.S., always have some more dogs. I'm pretty much a dog person. So we named the dog German Shepherd Dino too, because that's how much I loved him. And I think what's really interesting is like you took, when you were forced out of your homes, you took just a few belongings and, yeah. you, and you took Dino with you. And that sort yeah. of leads into the next scene that Tim's going to read. I owned only two things other than my clothes, my bicycle and my dog Dino. My bicycle, which my father had given to me when I was five, was where I'd left it in the factory. Dino was by my side. I looked down at him and he looked up at me with questioning eyes. Good boy, I said, and reached down to pet him. If I had to part with one, I thought, I could give up my bike. A few of the others in our group raised their hands to ask questions and began to speak, but the Ankar leader cut them off. Silence! No questions! You heard me! You keep nothing but your clothes! Go get everything else and turn it over to Ankar! You should not have jewelry or dishes or anything. We will do an inspection later. We will discuss dyeing your clothes black on another day. For now, turn in everything you have. We all filed back into the factory, standing in the line that moved slowly through the door. I looked up at my mom and spoke to her softly. Mom, do I have to give up my bicycle? Yes, she said, whispering. They are serious. What about Dino? She looked down at Dino by my side and pursed her lips. We will see, she said. I rolled my bike out and my mom carried our pots and pans. We joined the procession, turning in meager belongings by simply dumping them in the pile where the guards stood with their rifles. Mom dropped her pots and pans into the pile with a clang including the teapot that had been a wedding gift many years before. I rolled my bike up to the edge of the growing pile and let it fall. It was a very simple vehicle, only one speed, and the tires were worn and the chain rusty. I was nine years old and too big for this bike, which had been perfect when I was five. But I had ridden many miles on it and loved it. My pa had given it to me, I did not want to give it up, but I did. I turned and walked away, tears building in my eyes, my mom on one side of me and Dino on the other. I thought about the day when my father had given me that bike and how happy I had been. I reached down to pet Dino. He licked my hand. We walked back into the factory and I worried that I would have to give him up too. Thank you, Tim. Um, we're going to sort of jump ahead a little bit, about a year. Leth, for the first year, worked on tractors with his uncle and um, you know, did that. But then after about a year, in 1976, uh, he was assigned to uh, join his mother and sister working in the rice paddies, which is what many in the killing fields did, uh, you know, planting, harvesting uh, rice at that time. And this scene that Tim's going to read begins when um, they've worked all morning on his first day, and now they're, uh, you know, getting they're going to lunch or what the what 
past for lunch? It's, it's lunch is not real lunch, and uh, pretty much we call it uh, rice soup, which is just a taste of it, like you eat soup. That's what we have for lunch. And there's no time. It's just pretty much go eat and go back to work. There's no break. There's no time. It's just like 16 hours or 16 hours. So, yeah. And when this scene begins, you've already worked about five or six hours in yeah. the morning in the sun, and they call you over to lunch. Yeah. My mom and sister sat down on the edge of the rice paddy dam in the mud, and I followed them. We sat in the rain and drank from the small metal bowls. My bowl of lukewarm rice soup was only half full, and I slurped down its contents in only a few seconds. There was very little rice in the soup and nothing else, not even salt. I longed for hay mushrooms, something to fill my belly. But none were in sight. We finished eating what little we had received and sat there, staring down at the mud, holding our empty bowls, saying nothing, the rain soaking our black clothes. After only a few minutes, the woman screamed again, Return your bowls and get back to work! We filed by and put our bowls in a stack. We spent the afternoon often in heavy rains, picking the seedlings in the nursery field and making bundles and then planting them in the larger field. It seemed endless. Plant a few seedlings, move a few steps through the mud and water with the bundle. Repeat, over and over and over again. I spent most of the day bending over. I was exhausted and hungry and dehydrated. I could tell everyone felt the same way. Many of our group began to slow down. I saw one woman, just standing in the field, not moving, her eyes closed, sleeping for a few seconds at a time. I began looking around to see if the Ankar were watching me. I thought about burying all my seedlings in the mud in one spot, but then I saw the man in the distance and the ever-present guard with the AK-47. I didn't want to get into trouble, because I knew it would mean trouble not just for me, but for my mom and my sister. I trudged on, praying for the day to end. Although it seemed like it never would, eventually it did. After the Ankar rang the bell to end the workday, we walked about a mile back to Choice Dow, where Dino greeted me happily. Dino's love and affection brought the only happy moments I had in that time. He can make me smile in spite of it all. We collapsed onto the bamboo pallets in the rice processing factory, where we spent our nights. I was very hungry and thought about going out hunting for rats but I didn't see my friends, nor did I have the energy. I was so tired that I just lay down and stared at the ceiling until I fell asleep. This was the first of countless days I would work in the rice paddies, days that almost killed me. And Thanks, Tim. Um, the hard thing about talking about this book is he endured so many things in the four years of the killing fields, then in the refugee camps before coming to the U.S. And we also tell the story about coming to the U.S. and becoming a Secret Service officer. Um, then the audiobook, you know, you've got a taste of Tim's reading, I think is about 10 hours and 46 minutes. So it's uh, we're trying to condense it here. Uh, but let's tell us a little bit about how, you know, after the killing field, um, you were homeless for a year, then you ended up in refugee camps. So tell us a little bit about that experience, and then Tim will read one more section. 
We, uh, we started before we came to the refugee inside, inside Thailand. The first refugee camp called Kawidang, but outside there, before it started, it's, there's nothing as, I mean, it pretty much the tree is our roof, you know, there's, there's no clean waters. So many times you just get it, whatever looks good enough to drink. Um, Kaidang was a third refugee camp in it. Um, the one like feels safer, bought wires, but there's foods limited, water limited, no haircuts, no hygiene, no toothbrush, no toothpaste, stuff like that. So when I feel like we move from there to the second one called Sakao, and then there's four or five different refugees came in Thailand, and then the last one in the Philippines before I come here. So we're staying six months in the Philippines, but it's a lot of process, a lot of, uh, waiting and coming to America, which never thought of it. First uh, thing, maybe France would be the first one with French colonized back then. Second one would be Canada, Australia, but U.S. never thought of it. Just, I think the draw of luck because my dad was working in the army for so long from the Israel to London, which back by the Americans, so they accept us as one of military service family. That's how we got here. Yeah. And, and the third camp, the, well, you were in two of the um, unofficial camps, the unofficial, new camp, yeah. and then you moved through three camps with yeah. with the UN camps in Kamput. Kamput, yeah. Kamput is the one that, uh, the third one where you might have a, had a sense that you might be coming to America. And that's where uh, Tim's going to read this last part here. After we had been in Kamput for a few months, I learned about English courses that were being taught in the camp. Unlike in Sakao, where the schooling had been free, the English classes in Kamput were set up independently by freelancers who required refugees to pay to attend. I made two friends who took the classes with support from family overseas. They would speak English to each other, and I was so impressed. Cambodians just like me, speaking English. They seemed not like refugees to me, but like wealthy people. I had no money to pay for the classes, but I did not give up my dream of learning the language of the United States. My friends told me when and where the classes were held. I would follow them and linger across the dirt path from the school and wait. After the students went inside, I would sneak up to the outside wall. It was a big hut with plywood sides and a thatched roof. And find a crack in the wall to peek in and try to hear. I didn't have the book the students were using, and I only had a broken nub of a pencil and cigarette papers on which to write notes. But I copied down what I could see on the blackboard in the room. I tried to say the words I heard the students repeating. Learning English this way seemed impossibly hard, but I stayed with it. A few other young refugees who also couldn't afford the classes started copying what I was doing. One day, when I was eavesdropping on a lesson, I noticed the teacher a Cambodian man who spoke English well, scowling at me through the crack in the wall. The next time I showed up to listen to the class, he had covered the crack with paper. I couldn't see or hear anything. I scoured the building for another crack where I could follow the lessons, but they were all blocked. That was the end of my English lessons in Kamput. But you did go on to learn English and wrote, the, yeah. he wrote the first 50,000 word, first draft of 50,000 words in English of this book. So, um, and actually the cover book, this, this is the oldest photograph of left when he was 15. Uh, he took a course in automotive mechanics at Sakao 
and they gave you a certificate with his photo. So you can see his the oldest picture, surviving picture of him when he was 15. So you got a lot of hair then. <laughs> so then, you know, from the Philippines to the U.S. to work in many, many jobs um, and then joining the Secret Service yeah. uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. And we'll take questions and you'll let, you can, you know, Les going to talk a good bit more. But I do want to ask, because Les and I have been out, out talking about this book since February. This is the third event in three days, but we haven't had Tim uh, with us at all. And I want to hear Tim talk about like your experience being the uh, the narrator and you know what this book, the, the experience of working with this book has meant for you. Well, it, uh, this uh, I, I've been reading, uh, you know, many different subject matters, et cetera. And I knew about the killing fields uh, from my childhood, but obviously I didn't really know it. And uh and, and, and also it being from through a child's eyes, you know, a child that's sort of has forced into manhood, you know, in a way. Uh, and I had a connection in that my mom, you know, she wasn't in the killing fields. She's Korean, thought she was Japanese. You know, she was born in Osaka. And then after World War II ended, uh, that's when she found out she was actually Korean and they left Japan and went to Korea and she had to learn a whole new language there, but she worked in the rice paddies in Korea, uh, which I didn't realize until, uh, my mom hasn't read in five years. She's going to be 90 in December. And, uh, she stopped reading about five years ago. But when I told her about this book, then she wanted to read it. And, uh, she like, you know, read a chapter each day. And then at some point it turned into more than one chapter because she couldn't get enough, but she would be in tears. And she said so much of it reminded her, her of her life. And, um, it's, it, it's, it was extremely touching, gratifying, enlightening. This is a story that needs to be told. You know, I realized the, the pieces that we, that we read for here, um, so much of it is so heavy and that's definitely in the book, but there's a lot of other positive things in the book. So it's not like uh, the whole book is a downer or anything like that. It's a, it's a wonderful book about redemption and, uh, and striving against the odds. Um, and so I just, you know, it, it would be, I, I would be reading and, um, and then I just have to stop and just sort of take in everything. And, uh, and then I would come back and I would, I would pick it up again and, and continue on. And, uh, yeah, it was just extremely gratifying to work on this. And I, I really feel thankful. And then having met you guys and let, and I are, we're like brothers now. Uh, it's, it's funny how this works out, but, uh, you know, I went up to San Francisco for a book event, uh, and that's where we first uh, met in person and, and had a meal and hung out and, and we're in through social media and through we're texting each other. I mean, we are we are so much um, in sync with each other, I think, in so many ways and uh, which even, you know, is makes me more appreciative of my life growing up because certainly I did not go through that. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I I'm so thankful for having been able to narrate this book. It's a true honor and a true honor uh, becoming friends with you guys. Thank you, Tim. Leth, what would you like to, to say? Maybe we'll wrap it up and then we'll take some questions here. Um, <clears throat> the book is uh, pretty much dedicated to our parents, my mom especially. Uh, she, we went through a lot of trips uh, during the escape dozens of times, and uh, she's already in her early 60s. But 
the love of a mother, it's indescribable how much she can do and sacrifice herself to make sure us survive. And she becomes so close to me after my dad's gone. Um, I always, you know, she passed away 2018, and uh, every day I drive to work, always think of her. She's always waiting for me. All my daughter, any family, she makes sure they get home safe. I don't have anybody at home to watch them wait for me anymore. So that's why I always said uh, both of them, my dad, my mom's, um, will be here with me every day, watching on my back. And uh, beside that, whatever child, say I get a lot of bamboo sticks from her because I don't listen to her. But uh, those make me who I am today. Um, number one, the book, uh, number one, number two is the book, uh, Tell a Story. Like Tim just said, most people don't know what killing field. They heard about it, don't really know what really happens. So I have to put it out there, the history you tell the world and everyone else what really happened. It's like talk to my colleagues, they don't know what it is until they one day they want to actually see the killing fields. So killing fields two different sites, one S21 where they housed, they uh, torture all the innocent people, men, women, children there. I went back there with my son to look hopefully to find my family member there. I could only go through six different rooms. It's a, it's really sad, gruesome, and just couldn't go anymore. So I have to stop my son. He could only went to uh, two rooms. That's how bad it was. This is years ago, 40, 50 years ago. And uh, hopefully motivate people, you know, about the story. I survived so many different things. If I can make it, anyone can make it too, you know. Set up the hope, work towards your hope. Um, the third of that, the fourth of that is uh, the proceed of the book will go help to Cambodian kid children at home because I grow up poor. I don't have anything. One of which in camp, you know, I don't have pencil. I don't have anybody supply me or provide me the money to go to school. So I do everything I can to learn English, maybe ABC. That's how I can get out of it. So I always look back being poor, how it feels. So the kids, they went back one time and, like, you know, it, it doesn't need much for them to, to go to school. You know, a backpack, a pencil, a book is probably cost three, four dollars. And the meal breakfast about 25 cents. So um, from a poor scavenging plastic aluminum to help my parents. So I know how it is being full, how it feels, you know. So I want to get back to the society. And Sam as well, you know, can't give enough credit to him. He made all these things happen. Spent a lot of hours, you know, more than me. He knows more about me than me, you know, myself. So, <laughs> yeah. Sean, the uh, publishers, make it all happen. Tim, no. Yeah, I, can, can I throw out one fact really quickly? Just to sort of give the killing fields in perspective for the people in the audience, is that they estimate out of an 8 million population, 2 million died so that's one out of four people so if you just look around in the room around you one out of every four people and, and it's it makes it so much more amazing that let and his mom and his sister made it out but yeah it's crazy yeah it's a remark it's just stunning to think about that number and one thing i like the point you made tim that uh you know we did read the heavier scenes i mean the killing field section is tough i mean and actually you know i have I've been working on this book for five years and have read it hundreds of times. I thought I'd gotten beyond the point of getting teary-eyed or crying 
But your reading was so, you know, well done. I was uh, getting choked up yet again. So, um, you know, it's, and you know, Leth and I sat and did, you know, hundreds of hours of interviews asking about like details of this and details of that. And he, he never once complained. So, um, you know, to go back and to visit a lot of the memories he did was, was really tough. Uh, but I think he's, you know, I know you're glad you did it. Uh, but the book, you know, the second, you know, there are four parts and then you get to the refugee camps and then you get to America and becoming who he's become. Uh, you know, I've heard the book, you know, has lots of tears of sadness, but sort of ends with tears of joy. So it is, it is not all, um, all, all that heavy, even though much of it is. Well, any sort of last word and then we'll take some questions. I just want to say thank you very much for being here. Listen to my story. So hopefully it's. Help you motivate somebody somewhere, you know. Said uh, I made it through, you know. Still happy. I make a lot of jokes. That's just the way I am. So I look at back, smile a lot. People's always thinking life is tough. What you make of it, you know. Not having a Starbucks in the morning is not all that bad. So <laughs> yeah. And we do have books for sale here, and there are books for sale at the. Uh, but yeah. he, we'd be glad to sign some if anybody would like one. But we definitely have some time for questions. Yeah, any question you want to know? Um, yes, sir. Hi, nice to meet you. Was writing this book really helpful in uh, addressing trauma and uh, coming to some catharsis with um, your history, or was it more of just getting your story out and sharing it with others? It's more of a get the story out killing fields. And most people, like, again, back to what I said earlier, when I start killing people, people know just a killing field. Um, I, now, don't quote me, after the Vietnam War, people don't know anything about Southeast Asia anymore. So killing field, two million plus people die. Nobody really cares. So having a story out, not to teach people, it's, this is what had happened. It could happen to any other country. And not so much about my story. Yes, my story probably is some way unique, but there's two, three million out of people in Cambodia that died the same thing. Most of them, when I talked to the children generation, they said, my parents went through like you, but they never told the children what had happened. So it, it's such a painful a memory that people don't want to hear about it and want to put it out there anymore. So... I decided to do it. It's really painful to bring back lost most of my families, my dad, everything else. I'm the only child in most families. So it's not so much to tell my story out there. It's the whole Cambodian story out there. So it, it, it's education purposes, you know, what happened there too. So I do know there are a lot of things that you talked about and I, you know, we talked about in the interviews and the, that you had not, you'd held inside for right. many years and then you, you were going out. I know and a common qu question we've had asked for a number of interviewers is about like, do you feel like you had PTSD or what was the trauma? And talk a little bit about that. It it was kind of a little bit when it started, when I came here, didn't speak English. I get no family, nobody. So kind of looking back, this is what it started during the communist kind of held everything back. So I walk around, see the people, you know, speak English to each other, friendly, happy, and whatnot. So a week or two, maybe a month or two later on, I told my mom, I said, we're going to leave this country. One thing I need to, learn English. So I learned English. I turned those negative to positive. I always look back, if I didn't die back then during interrogation, so many hours, whatnot, I say I can turn positive. A bad day, I turned to a, bad, uh, a good day. So it motivated me. 
if if I go there, I think about something like doing drugs, something like that, you know, it, it's not going to help me. So I turned every positive that had happened to a negative. Motivate me, move me to wherever I want to go. Any other questions? I think we have time for a few more. Um, you've you've really shown and demonstrated that you look ahead and you look to the next thing and move forward. So I'm just curious, what's next for you when you <sighs> retire from the Secret Service? What are you I, thinking I love about dogs. next? Dog is is my passion. Uh, grow up with dogs like Dino. We get Dino one, Dino two, a uh, Reich buddy. I get four or five dogs myself. Right now, I don't have one because it's working like it's too much. Twelve, fourteen hours a day, seven days a week. You know. My goal is to use the knowledge, the skills I have to go back home teaching the Cambodian dog handlers. Or maybe here, I don't know, but uh, going back there, the knowledge I have to, to help my country back. I mean, America's always my country, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's more beneficial people. Right now, there is no a official dog trainer in Cambodia, as uh, I was told. Uh, there's a foreign... Uh, handlers or training come a couple of days, they, they, they teach them and they went back. So I want to go there like, hey, this is what we do. This is how it's supposed to work. It's in the 70s, this is the way to train dog or handling dog. This is 21st century. So it's not so much about me, so much. Uh, Cambodia has been hosting a lot of events lately. So when other country comes in like, this is Cambodia now, it's not in 75s anymore. So, so my, I mean, me, I don't really care, you know, my name, that's me. It's just like work for the Secret Service. When I go overseas, most of the time, I command my dog Cambodian. So if anything happened, you're not going to say, hey, Ooh, it's a Secret Service. If I go back to Cambodia, it's, yeah, this is Cambodia now, not you know, 40, 50 years ago. So that's my goal. I, uh, that's my goal, but it's going to do some work to get into it. Well, you did meet the Cambodian Prime Minister just yeah, a few weeks yeah. ago in New York, so I think you're probably making some good contact. So. Yeah, so I told him, I said, you know, if I'm there and down the road, you guys want to go to visit me, hit me up. You know, always welcome. You know, show not so much about me, the cultures, the traditions. This is Cambodian. You know what it looks like. In order to understand more, you got to be there, learn more. Well, the language probably a little hard though. Or maybe more time for one more, and we'll be glad. Well, we're going to hang out and you know we hang out and talk and sign books, and then we're going over to the high school too. So I encourage everybody to go to the book festival over there. So it's a lot of great. Uh, I'm sorry, oh. I can't see the audience, so I don't know if anyone's going to ask a question. But I do have a question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I know that you kept it close to your sleeve uh, while being a Secret Service agent, but. Um, now that uh, the book's coming out and everything, I wonder what your feelings are about the people that you work with and 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 their reactions, whether they've already had them or what they might be uh, when they find out about your story. It's a lot of change lately. I mean, since the book comes out, I told them here and there. Um, you know, people can make up the story, tell the story, whatever they want to say. But uh, when I told them, on the papers, in the books, it's a memoir. And Sean can testify that because he did a lot of fact check page by page to make sure everything is real. So I think the attitude have changed a lot lately. There's people I never knew before. Send me an email, call me. It's an honor to work with you. It's an honor to call your colleagues. It's so many emails and 
uh, phone calls lately. I said, uh, most of them, I don't even know where they call from. Not even just Secret Service, even the whole DHS people from California down south. They send me, it's, it's you know, it's an honor to work with you, the same department. It's a lot of, uh, you know, friends turn out to be brothers and sisters more. So the co-workers turn out to be friends. So it's after they know my story, you know, from the book, or read the book, bought the book, so podcast, yeah. Yeah, no, the, uh, I went to an event at the Secret Service headquarters with Leth back in May. There were about 100 people there, and like so many people were, because they, you know, there were people that worked with him for 20 years who didn't really appreciate, you know, what, you know, you hear the killing fields, okay, but then like you read the details and you understand the, that were, it was really moving. And, yeah. uh, you know, the people who work, you know, there was one guy who said, I've worked with this guy for 20 years and I've seen him at two in the morning when it's five degrees and he still has a smile on his face for you. So to know Leth is to love him, really. And I, it was such a nice, warm room of people who worked with him and who got to know his story. So I, uh, I'm thrilled that I've been able to be a part of it and have gotten to know. I never wanted to write anybody else. I was, a, you know, I'm a, still consider myself a novelist and I didn't want to be anybody's co-author, but uh, this one, and it, I think I'll probably never meet anybody else like Leth, so I'm not going to do it again. But uh, I'm so happy that I was able to be a part of this book. And Tim, the reading was beautiful. It was really, uh, I can't wait you, to thanks, hear the whole audio book. Thank you. But thank you for joining us. And uh, thanks everybody for coming out. I, r- I really appreciate it.